Welcome to The Dialectic, a podcast by Fair Observer. I'm Atul Singh. I'm the founder, CEO and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. I am the Rajput. With me is Glenn Carl. I guess I'm the Wasp. Between the two of us, the Rajput and the Wasp, we will address um, the huge uh, controversy, tensions and rhetoric over Taiwan. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, has visited Taipei. She has addressed, uh, I believe, the Taiwanese um, Parliament. Obviously, Beijing is apoplectic. President Xi Jinping, or rather Emperor Xi Jinping, uh, has stirred up the nationalistic cauldron and through that cauldron have emerged uh, holy spirits or unholy spirits who are, uh, or let's say, little dragons uh, who are uh, breathing fire and brimstone at the umbrage of uh, this dastardly and treacherous uh, uh, American leader. Obviously, the Taiwanese are caught uh, between a rock and a hard place uh, and uh, they are not enjoying the situation. They do need U.S. security, but at the same time, they don't want the Chinese to start firing missiles uh, at their tiny island. So to make sense of it all, um, let's begin with context. And who better than a CIA man and a CIA man with a Chinese wife to educate us all about (laughs) this controversy? Well, the the history actually um, does have strong links to the birth of the U.S. intelligence establishment in in a way that almost no one does know. Uh, The story, and I won't be too long-winded on this, but the context is is important. This is a a fantastic story. It can be as long as you need to be. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, the... um, the, the predecessor to the CIA, as some may know, is, it was called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. It was uh, America's uh, intelligence and uh, commando paramilitary outfit during World War II. But since the U.S. military uh, did not want the OSS to exist and thought that the, uh, the Pentagon should which there was no Pentagon then, but the War Department should handle everything. Uh, It locked the OSS out from operating uh, in most parts of the uh, World War, except for uh, China. And and the uh, OSS snuck in through the back door, as it were, uh, and the back door was the uh, American naval intelligence. The Chinese uh, were involved in a civil war between the communists and the nationalists in the 1930s. Then they were invaded by the Japanese who decided that they wanted to do a couple things. One, to get the white colonialists out of Asia. And two, to have their own colony. Uh, you know, we're better at, the, we should, are more uh, apt to be colonizers and in Asia than, um, than the, the Guaylo uh, barbarian uh, white colonizers. So the U.S. Uh, supported the uh, nationalist government of China, which was the legally recognized one, uh, to, uh, against, uh, one, the communists, but 
especially to the Japanese. And uh, they asked, they, the nationalists, asked for um, help to the U.S. Navy for reasons which are fascinating, but I, I think too detailed to go into now, but it, it related to code breaking. Um, and it was through that link that the OSS came in contact with and was able to operate in China in support of the nationalists. Then the U.S. entered World War II against Japan, of course. And so uh, the U.S. and China were uh, allies against uh, Japan. That was the main reason for the American presence in China at that time. The problem for the Americans came uh, with the Civil War uh, because uh, who would win and who, whom should the United States support? And the U.S. Uh, was divided on that point, frankly. Uh, the uh, OSS, the intelligence community, to a significant extent, recommended supporting the communists as less corrupt. That's debatable, but uh, that was the position. And the uh, Pentagon and the uh, diplomats who were appointed by the ambassador being a, a conservative uh, sided with the nationalists. And so the decision was well, we have to oppose communism, which is this global uh, worldwide uh, threat. And so the U.S. aligned with the nationalists. But the communists won. Uh, the nationalists fled from the mainland, having lost the war, to uh, Taiwan, uh, which uh, was, has been part of China really for 400 years now. Uh, it was occupied by the, Chi by the Japanese, but, but Chinese, uh, really. And the U.S. continued to um, support or recognize the nationalist Chinese government, which over the now 80 years since the end of World War II, uh, morphed into the government of Taiwan. And uh, that is how the U.S. came to be aligned with uh, what is now Taiwan uh, against China, which has always maintained that there's only one China and that Taiwan is part of it. And this is an internal affair and that the outsider imperialist has nothing to say about it whatsoever. The U.S. and China had no relations at all until from World War II, uh, 1949, until 1972, when President Nixon uh, sent his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, to uh, have a great opening and rapprochement uh, between the U.S. and China. And then, in, ever since 1979, the U.S. has recognized Beijing, China, the mainland, as the uh, government of China and has uh, um, accepted that there is only one China. But the agreement between China and the U.S. was that there's one China and two systems, uh, meaning that uh, the mainland communist government uh, must not, may not, uh, seize Taiwan by force, and that the issue of uh, how to bring them together needs to be resolved peacefully. That's been the position for now... 50 uh, years and more, actually literally 50 years. The benefit in the approach actually taken by both Beijing and Washington has been one of conscious strategic ambiguity, uh, saying one China, two systems, recognizing that there is only one uh, legitimate uh, China, and yet um, affirming that there are two separate entities and that force must not be used these are incompatible uh, objectives which can only be reconciled through 
this ambiguous position and not becoming a, uh, an absolutist at all. Um, and that has brought us up. Uh, that has been the case, as I say, from 1979 until uh, today. Now, there has been a change um, in uh, the status quo in Asia, particularly in the last uh, decade. And, and I wonder if, Atul, you want to uh, spe- want me to stop there or, or to address that? No, no, please. I think, I think it is important that you address, uh, as you have, or rather as we have, uh, Xi's policy of aggressive defense, uh, uh, his turn to belligerence. Uh, and I think that sets the scene very well to me explaining the world through Beijing's eyes. Right. Sure. Okay. So, so I've talked about how the U.S. ended up um, aligning itself or or, or providing the uh, a defense umbrella um, for Taiwan, and yet being ambiguous about it, uh, and China's um, affirmation that that Taiwan is an integral part of China, and that the U.S. has nothing to say. The way the U.S. has formulated this uh, for now 50 years has to been to say that um, there must not be a uh, solution to the Taiwanese situation by force and that the U.S. would view any such uh, action by the mainland communist government as a grave threat uh, and that the U.S. Um, uh, will uh, protect Taiwan. But it never has said explicitly that it will militarily act in the event of a Chinese invasion or attack on Taiwan. It it has maintained this ambiguity um, up until uh, the last 18 months, uh, really. Well, you could say six years. We'll we'll skip the Trump administration, which was uh, belligerent to China, but also in many ways incoherent uh, in most of its policies. But relations deteriorated between China and the U.S., as everyone knows. With regard to Taiwan, I think the more relevant point uh, for today's crisis is that a number of months ago, President Biden, who has a reputation of uh, making uh, verbal gaffes, which I think is unjustified, but but he has that reputation, uh, said, well, of course the United States would defend Taiwan if China attacked. Um, The apparatus of the U.S. government, the State Department, and other uh, bodies uh, quickly backtracked and said, no, 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 we haven't changed our position of strategic ambiguity. This is a grave um, matter of concern, but we have not formally pledged to defend militarily in the event of an attack. Well, was this uh, a gaffe by President Biden? I have always maintained for decades that Biden's um, uh, reputation as a gaffer is unfair, and I think it's largely based on, one, his opponents, who, if he can... uh, uh, belittle someone, of course, that's to your advantage. And they're, they're frankly taking advantage of the fact that uh, Joseph Biden has a stutter and he does uh, struggle to formulate uh, his uh, words sometimes, rarely, but some. I think it comes from that. I also, I don't know, but I tend to think that Biden's, quote, gaffe uh, actually was an intentional step uh, to inject more uncertainty and apprehension in Beijing because there have been three 
two changes fundamentally in the past decade in uh, Asia and in the global geostrategic context. One is that uh, China's military now has global power. It is a peer uh, rival of the United States. That was not the case 10 years ago and more. Uh, during crises, China could get angry but could not do much about anything. Now they can. They can, uh, they have, can project their power now uh, to such an extent beyond China's shores that U.S. aircraft carriers uh, will not operate really in the event of a war within uh, 1,500 kilometers of the coast because of Chinese uh, missile capabilities. So China's military capability has grown dramatically. Two, in the past 12 years in particular, Xi Jinping, president of China, uh, the emperor, he really is the, the new emperor, as Atul said wryly but accurately, um, has dramatically played the nationalist card. China, the Chinese Communist Party regime's legitimacy has been based uh, on two uh, pillars, really, two uh, bases, uh, foundations. Uh, one, uh, providing ever-increasing economic prosperity and wealth to individuals. You can get rich. Uh, so long as you let you uh, accept the regime, and two, uh, a strong nationalist thread to uh, Chinese uh, statement, government statements and policy. You always will blame the outsider, and China has a colonial history of humili a century of humiliation. And by playing this card, making the uh, the neo-colonialists and the uh, global imperialist Americans the boogeyman, you can uh, garner support for the for the state. Uh, that, uh, those two uh, developments have created a different world now uh, so that a trip by Nancy Pelosi or whomever to Taiwan uh, can become and has become uh, actually a global crisis. And I, I think Atul uh, can uh, expand on China's perspective in this whole issue. Yeah, I mean, Glenn, I mean, to be fair, when you talk about the century of humiliation, there was a century of humiliation uh, for both India and China. So that is where, and for India, it was two, or if you want to calculate, it's eight. So in a way, both these countries are coming out of that period of colonization. And in the case of China, of course, the way they see the world, uh, they had a terrible 19th century disorder, rebellion. I mean, I don't want to uh, make it sound like a litany of woes, but it was a litany of war, woes. They lost the opium wars. Um, they were luckier than many other countries. This is what they do not recognize. They were much luckier than India. They were much luckier than Vietnam. They were not taken over by either British or French troops completely. And yes, they suffered enormously under the Japanese. But Japan was too little to really digest China. It did not impose, for instance, what Britain imposed in India, which, is, which was an egregious land tax. And if you couldn't pay that tax, your land was um, seized and auctioned off to the next highest bidder. This led to the biggest wealth transfer in Indian history, and there were more famines under British rule in India than in the 2,000 years uh, prior to the British arrival. So I'm not, I'm not mitigating Chinese suffering at all, but what I'm saying is that China was unfortunate, but not as unfortunate as some other entities. 
But China sees itself as the middle kingdom. Uh, it has always, uh, the term in Mandarin is um, Gongduo, if I remember correctly. Am I correct? I have a Chinese wife, but don't speak Mandarin. So, so, so uh, you know, they, they see themselves as the Middle Kingdom. Others were meant to give them tributes. They didn't even want to trade with the barbarians. And suddenly the barbarians with firepower, with naval um, advantage, take over, take over the coast, impose an opium trade, bit by bit take um, uh, over the, uh, take over the economy. And, and the Chinese still talk about uh, the British troops sacking the Summer Palace in Beijing as if it was yesterday. So from Chinese eyes, um, right from the outset, the US supposed them. And then the US made a deal with the Chinese. And this deal was a one China policy, as you well remember, the 1972 Shanghai communique. And as per this communique, um, the U.S. would recognize Beijing as uh, uh, as the representative of all of China, and and Taiwan was de jure seen a part of China. Of course, de facto, it was then run by the Kuomintang, and the Kuomintang also actually dreamt of reunifying China under under its rule. The Kuomintang didn't want a two-China policy as well, lest we forget. Now, gradually, as, as one-party rule, one, first it was one-man military rule under Chiang Kai-shek, and then, of course, uh, as he fell, um, or as after he died, and then his son took over, and after th that happened, eventually, like South Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan became a democracy. And now, uh, the president of Taiwan is not from um, the historic Nationalist Party. In fact, um, uh, she is particularly keen on uh, preserving her nation's sovereignty and uh, and uh, maintain um, a line of defense for democracy, or at least that's what her rhetoric says. And and it's a from the point of view of China, this is dangerous because Taiwan is drifting apart, and China sees itself as besieged. Uh, the Straits of Malacca are a choke point. Uh, the Indian Navy could choke the Chinese off. The Australians could. Um, even the Philippine Navy could cause them problems there. So they feel most of their trade passes through Malacca. Their energy supplies come from Malacca, and that's a choke point for them. That's like, a, that's like an artery which, if cut off, uh, could put, bring China on its knees. Yeah, I, I think you make two two important points. Yes, uh, that are, are worth um, highlighting. The uh, the not not the fear, the perception, the conviction of encirclement is an important part of the Chinese perspective, officially and I think organically in the in Chinese society. Um, all my uh, interactions uh, substantiate the the view that that um, this perspective has is broadly accepted by by the average Chinese person and that is that that um, China is literally surrounded globally by uh, by enemies and you can you started to iterate the the various places you know the, the US has bases here and there and relations with Japan and South Korea and invaded uh, Korea in their view and 
Um, uh, there are clashes with India, and the U.S. is now allying with India, and, and on and on. And, and then the second perspective, um, which is really important, I think, is you can compare, I think, the Chinese perspective in a thumbnail view, but a deeply held one, with uh, how the Vietnamese uh, felt or feel, or how, frankly, most um, now ex-colonial uh, countries and societies feel. From the Vietnamese perspective, the uh, South Vietnamese regime was were a bunch of puppets or aliens, even if they were Vietnamese, who were beholden to Paris and then Washington, and were not truly uh, Vietnamese. From the Chinese perspective, that is the same with the nationalists. Not only are they uh, capitalist rotors and running dogs of imperialism and so on, of uh, capitalist imperialism, but they are uh, puppets. That is not true, uh, but it is certainly uh, the view of, uh, of China. And, and profoundly they feel, well, what does this uh, foreigner um, of the wrong race from the wrong side of the ocean have to say at all about our, uh, our uh, internal affairs? And end, end of story. Exactly. And so for the Chinese, as you've very well summarized, they have no friends. Even Russia fought a war with them, a border war with them. So they fought with the Russians, they fought with the Indians, they fought with the Vietnamese. Uh, they have tensions with the Taiwanese who are next door. There's South Africa, uh, sorry, South Korea sitting right next to their northern coast. They have Japan. And then all the Southeast Asian states are really pro-US, whether it is Indonesia or Malaysia or Philippines, for all the rumblings of discontent. And China feels that any day the US could basically not just put a glass ceiling to its rise, but cut its knees off and reduce it to a smaller stature. That is a real and tangible fear. So from Chinese eyes, what they are seeing is that here you are, here you are uh, coming over to foment trouble, and here you are to change this policy at a time when you've already cut down Russia to size in many ways. You, you've, uh, you've taken war to Russia over Ukraine, you have squeezed Russia a fair bit, and now we are next. So from Chinese eyes, they see this as classic Western imperialism and belligerence. Well, I, I, I would add to that, I think that has been the perspective, but there's a, a new uh, growing pride and conviction uh, that that uh, makes the situation even more, uh, frankly, dangerous. And that is a, a growing uh, confidence and certainty in the part of Chinese leaders, unquestionably, and I would say the Chinese nation, uh, population, uh, that the, uh, the U.S. was the 20th century power and is progressively a spent force. Uh, but that China is the rising superpower and the world is returning to how it always uh, should have been and, and frankly almost always was until the last 500 years at, or even 200 years at most. Uh, which is that China is the Middle Kingdom, the center of the world, the world's great power. Others may um, offer fealty or allegiance uh, to it, and they will deal, uh, Beijing will deal bilaterally with them, uh, but that China is the center, Beijing is the center of the universe. And that now 
China um, actually is becoming that in economic, in military, and then, of course, in political might. Uh, and, and that truly is a, a dramatic change in the world. In 1997, there was a crisis between China and the United States in the Taiwan Straits. President Clinton sent two aircraft carriers to sail in the Taiwan Straits between Taiwan and the mainland. This angered China, but China could just be angry and do nothing about it. Today, as I say, uh, unless the U.S. is um, willing to accept a, a major war um, in a crisis, uh, aircraft carriers will hesitate, American aircraft carriers will hesitate to operate within 1,500 kilometers of the Chinese coast. Uh, it's a different world entirely now, and China's uh, assertiveness and confidence is uh, growing. And, and if I could talk uh, about the geostrategic framework... No, no, no. I think I'm going to interrupt you, Glenn. I'm going to be yeah. frightfully rude. I think what we need before <laughs> geostrategic realm is to think about the U.S. perspective, and we should break it down into geostrategic, the Republican view, and the Democrat view, because America is, is, is an extremely diverse and plural country, it is not ruled by one man. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, America's president can't even get his vice president's office in order. Forget about uh, Nancy Pelosi's office and forget about the Republicans on Capitol Hill. Uh, and come midterms, who knows who may rule. So America has too many power centers. America has the opposite problem of, of, of almost being dysfunctional, if, if not... Uh, in civil war, um, there is massive discord in America. So let's look at the U.S. perspective, but let us look sure. at it through the geostrategic prism, which, of course, uh, you as a retired CIA officer would know very well. But we also let's, uh, should look at the Republican viewpoint, worldview, and the Democrat worldview, uh, uh, and then we and then we move to the next section of the podcast. Sure. Well, you know, the the Americas were discovered. Um, uh, Columbus discovered them uh, as he sought to go to China. And the reason he was seeking to go to China was to... to uh, he was know, going to India, if I remember. That's why he called uh, the, the, the Native Americans Indians. He was going to Indians. India for uh, spices. Uh, well, uh, India, okay. <laughs> spices... But silver from maybe China advanced Kama Sutra China, too, too, given the fact he was Italian. <laughs> you know, maybe he thought he would have a harem like the Mughals, a big harem of uh, of beautiful women from across uh, uh, from the Hindu Kush uh, uh, to 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 Tamil Nadu. Maybe that is what he was imagining. Columbus, and Perhaps he ended up he ended Puritans up in the New World and 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 took back syphilis, I suppose. <laughs> yes, and the Puritans went to the snows in the north. I, I guess is, to lead a pure life, like your ancestors, out. five of whom That's were on the Mayflower. That's it. Well, the <laughs> I'll stand half corrected about the about the Indian spices. Yes, indeed, but. Um, the larger issue is the point is that China has been, even though it's uh, not been consciously known uh, in American political context all the time, has been fundamental to it at many points of American political struggle uh, internally, and and that certainly was the case uh, during uh, World War II and after. Um, the victory by Mao and the communists in 1949 over the uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. The, the issue in American politics became who lost China was the expression. 
and this was this was something um, a position taken and and uh, trumpeted by the Republicans, because it was a Democratic administration at the time. It was President Truman when uh, Beijing was conquered by by uh, by Mao. Ever since, there has been uh, a divide, really, between Republicans and, and Democrats. Now, this is broad brush, but, but on the whole, it is, it is accurate. I mean, but to be, just let me, let me very quickly interject, but it was Nixon who went to China. It was Henry Kissinger who negotiated with Deng Xiaoping. So the Republicans haven't entirely been uh, this hawkish party on China. And George Bush Sr. was ambassador to Beijing and actually had a very smooth relationship with Deng. All, all true, but the, the belief was, and I think I, I, I agree with it, that only Nixon, the ultimate cold warrior, the ultimate anti-communist, uh, could have uh, succeeded in making the American opening to China, that a Democrat would have been destroyed as as surrendering to uh, communism and not not affirming American national interests. Um, broadly speaking, <clears throat> the Republican view has been that China is a strategic threat, and that the U.S. must uh, dominate China. So the Chinese fear that the U.S. is seeking to encircle and and uh, hinder its development or stop it. Uh, there's truth to it uh, when you look at the conservative wing, certainly, of the Republican Party. The Democrats, uh, and there's overlap between Democrats and Republicans, of course, but uh, in these positions, the, the Democratic view, broadly speaking, has been to seek to affirm the international normative system. Now, a critic from India or China, perhaps, would say that the, quote, international normative system, the post-World War II system, was created by America for American benefit and is neo-imperialist. I don't, I don't know if we want to have this, th that debate, but uh, at least the Democrats on the whole, with respect to China, uh, seek to affirm the system. And that means... Uh, promoting democracy, thus criticizing the Communist Party of China, uh, promoting human rights, thus criticizing the Communist Party of China, uh, and uh, opposing uh, viscerally a, a, a military uh, in seizure and invasion of Taiwan, uh, which has become in the last 30 years, I guess, um, a, um, a pretty impressive democracy, not, not just an anti-communist nationalist originally quasi-fascist uh, state. And those are the broad speaking, broadly speaking, the two, two frameworks that U.S. policy towards China and towards Taiwan are shaped in. And, and Nancy Pelosi, as the country's most powerful leading Democrat, um, embodies this. And she has, for uh, her 30 years in public office, uh, been quite consistent in her position uh, opposing Chinese violations of human rights and fundamental anti-democratic uh, nature. She traveled to Tiananmen Square in 1991, held a banner up uh, uh, honoring the students that the regime had killed, and there were hundreds of them, was arrested um, and I think deported, uh, uh, and then ever since then has, has uh, 
had similar positions with regard to uh, Chinese human rights and democratic violations. This trip uh, is very that she made to Taiwan is very much in line uh, with that. Uh, I do know uh, when I was working, going 25 years ago and up to the time I retired, literally every meeting that I had uh, in which a representative of the White House was present uh, for, and they were present at all my meetings, whatever the subject, uh, would always raise a question about uh, how this affected uh, the U.S. position towards China. This was a Republican administration when I was in, in, in the functions I'm alluding to, and they viewed everything from the, the framework of how do we stop uh, China's threat and rise, the two being synonymous. Uh, that's not the case with the Democratic uh, administration. All right. So, so you've painted us uh, a vignette of uh, American geostrategic opinion and, of course, the two views that have shaped American policy, Republican and Democrat. Uh, now, let me get back to Nancy Pelosi, who has been a bitter critic since 1991 of China, uh, who... Um, I, champions human rights. I don't know what she has to say about Saudi Arabia and Joe Biden's fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman, who I'm sure um, has taken a shower and, 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 and become squeaky clean after the bloodletting in Istanbul of his, of his mild critic, uh, a journalist named Adnan Khashoggi. But anyway, that aside, uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, the campaigner for democracy, the Joan of Arc of our times, the aging Joan of Arc, she, she's 82. Why is she visiting Taiwan and why now? Well, this is a, I guess it's the question that we, we need to answer and, and I don't know that we can. Uh, I was initially bemused by it. Um, the U.S. has um, a more important fish to fry right now or whatever metaphor one wants to use. I guess that's not a very good one. No, um, well, Putin, in, likes, in, Putin in his, likes fishing, so someone's got to fry his fish. I think, Glenn, you, you'd, well, like to, exactly you, you'd like to play ice hockey with him, punch his, you know, punch him in the face, break his jaw, as you once did, uh, and then eat his fish, it seems. Well, I can state with confidence that as a hockey player, he is a complete threat. There is no question about that. And he should therefore be drummed out of public life for having sullied such a, a wonderful sport. However, the, right now, the, the top contemporary, immediate issue and concern, strategic issue for the United States, I think should be um, stopping Putin from uh, in his invasion in Ukraine. And to do that, you have to take the geostrategic position. Who are the great powers? Well, uh, there's uh, Russia remains, obviously, a, a power, uh, China, the United States, and the EU and, and NATO overlapping, um, not, not the EU, not a military power, but still a great uh, power economically, at least. So you don't want to have other great powers uh, side with your opponent uh, at a time of war. And it would seem to me uh, that our priority should be to continue 
taking steps that that enable, induce, convince all of the above, uh, Beijing uh, not to support Russia. So far, uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, they have not, by all accounts, uh, provided military assistance, although the Russians have repeatedly requested it. They have not uh, provided economic uh, assistance or trade. The level of trades are trade is substantially down, almost as much from Chinese businesses with Russia as it is from European and American ones. Uh, and that is strategically in the interest of the United States. So to provoke China now would seem to me to have been unwise. Uh, now, it's also true that in the past decade, China has changed the status quo in Asia by being dramatically more belligerent and dramatically more capable. And uh, at some point, um, Asian states uh, would hope for, and the United States would feel uh, the need to affirm in, in uh, the uh, normative system. China is a, a challenging of the status quo rising great power. The United States is a status quo maintaining great power. It is in the interest it's, it's of the most clash, Asian it's states. It's the clash of the ruling. Power. Sorry to interrupt. It's the clash of the ruling and the rising power, which uh, I think it was right. Graham Ellison who talked about of Harvard, your institution, who talked about the Thucydides trap. Yes. Yeah, and he, he points out uh, it's, a, it's a frightening uh, data uh, point. He studied in his book uh, th called Thucydides' Trap 20 instances in human history, in the, in the 10,000 years of human history, when a great power was challenged by a rising great power. And in 16 of those 20 instances, uh, because this, this implied a potential change to the world order, in 16 of those 20 instances, uh, the situation was only resolved by a major war. So only one out of five instances in human history uh, that similar to what we are living now has uh, been resolved short of a major war, which is a very sobering thought. So at some point, the most, I think every Asian state, with the exception possibly of North Korea, um, would uh, want the U.S. to push back uh, harder. Uh, but uh, to do so, it becomes a, a, a globally endangering uh, um, game of chicken, as it were. And it, I think everyone would know the game of chicken, where you challenge your opponent, so you dare him to uh, um, until the point of uh, conflict. I mean, I was, I'll leave it at that. Uh, so that's that's the context in which Pelosi chose to go, and she clearly felt that um, she or the United States or someone needed to affirm these international norms. Uh, I. I admire uh, Pelosi, and I agree with her objectives. I don't know if the timing was the wisest. Well, uh, I mean, I must say that I must disagree with you. I've uh, always had reservations about Pelosi. I do not like her moralizing. I suspect her pearls. I think she's a little too wealthy. I see her as a bit of a... Actually, I do see her as a champagne socialist, a little too beholden to Silicon Valley and Wall Street. So I think... We'll have to disagree on Pelosi, but my point is not about Pelosi. My point is that the timing of her visit coincided with the anniversary of the founding of the People's Liberation Army. Uh, 
and she is just a few months away from a really crucial party congress in which he is securing a third term, something which is a break with precedent. She is emulating Mao. He is breaking the precedent set by Deng, which wanted to weaken the personality cult within the Communist Party that Mao had left behind. He did exercise a lot of power, but, but Deng wanted a collective technocratic um, elite to steer the ship of the state wisely. And to be fair, what uh, China achieved under Deng Xiaoping is nothing sort, uh, short of sensational. Uh, 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 the great Singaporean leader uh, uh, who created uh, uh, the, the Singaporean state, uh, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Exactly, Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew said that he found Deng the most exceptional leader he had ever met because he had the ability to change his mind and question his assumptions. And I think we've discussed this before. What is happening is that the pendulum has swung uh, back from Deng to the Maoists. And what she is, is uh, Mao in new bottle. There is obviously not the same old Maoist ideology. Uh, instead of that, you get uh, nationalism on steroids. Um, and uh, you, you also have problems with demography. You have problems uh, with uh, the property sector. You have problems with bad uh, debts on uh, China's uh, banks. And uh, you've got uh, a spluttering economy thanks to an extraordinarily asinine um, zero-COVID policy. So she is seeking a third term when he's not actually being the great helmsman. He's not commandeering the ship of the state very well. Obviously, there's been no great leap forward and no cultural revolution. So he's not led China through two major disasters, unlike Mao. But I think he's getting close. Well, I, I would, uh, I certainly agree that the strains in uh, the Chinese system uh, are uh, substantial and growing, and that she is, uh, I've been bemused by things he's done too. Now, cl clearly, I am not a Chinese communist, uh, but uh, China has had a, one of the great uh, 50-year period, periods, 40-year periods uh, in human history. Uh, it's, it's astounding what China has accomplished. Um, and China could continue to uh, achieve most of the objectives it has uh, by having continued uh, basically Deng's policy. And he was no, uh, you know, wallflower. He was uh, a Chinese communist nationalist also, but a, a good deal more subtle and flexible one than it appears she is. Yeah. I mean, look, she has she has look I would argue that he was a lot tougher than she. He survived the long march. He survived persecution. His son was thrown out of a window and ended up paralyzed. I mean, she fundamentally, yes, he suffered during the Cultural Revolution, but she's a princeling. He's not had to struggle the way Deng did. And in a way, it Absolute. seems... To, Absolute. it's oh. Sorry, you were saying something. No, no, I was just, I was just vehemently agreeing with you. Yes, yes, I completely agree. And, and, and she seems to be a modern version of Kaiser Wilhelm I. He's squandering what uh, 
what the Chinese version of Otto von Bismarck, you know, who, who, who of course, no, wasn't tall at all. Bismarck was a giant of a man and Deng, in comparison, was a midget. But Deng was a giant of a man if, you know, when it came to uh, political stature. Uh, and and she is doing to Deng exactly what I see um, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm one do, or Kaiser Wilhelm II, sorry, do to Bismarck. Uh, he's squandering a phenomenal uh, legacy. I, I haven't thought about those comparisons, but I think that they are apt and they are quite disturbing because it's yet another... Um, History doesn't repeat itself, but uh, humans, human nature doesn't change, and nor do international relation dynamics. And uh, you know, uh, um, history doesn't Kaiser, repeat Kaiser. itself, but it rhymes, as someone said. <laughs> yeah, that's very well said. Well, unfortunately, we might find a rhyme um, between um, German and and Mandarin uh, progressively, which is uh, will is alarming. Yeah, but now, but here's so, here's the so thing: is that. The, Here's where I find Nancy Pelosi, uh, maybe she's 82, maybe she should just retire and enjoy her pearls and her millions of dollars of uh, assets and wonderful beach properties. Uh, why is she poking the dragon in the eye? Is this the time to slay the dragon? The dragon is actually sick and the dragon may actually collapse under its own weight. But why right. Well, right. pick a well, fight with the dragon and I, I, make I, it breathe fire? I, I completely agree with that. I, I don't agree with your characterizations of Nancy Pelosi, whom I think is possibly the, the greatest um, uh, speaker of the House in American history. We'll have but to that's, disagree that's a different, with Glenn there. We'll have to disagree. That's a different subject. We do agree on the subject at hand, though, which is that it probably was unwise to do this. And at this time, I, I think... We all will recall you know, the famous statement by President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, one, of States, one of my great heroes. One of my great heroes. Yes, indeed. Uh, or any state should speak softly but big carry stick. a big stick. And and I think that the – and here I'll, I'll, I'll combine – Theodore Roosevelt's approach to foreign policy with, with Marxist analysis. Uh, My I, God, I, I mean, I'm it seems really Peter Isaacson is influencing you. <laughs> the world is coming to an end. Um, no, no. Um, well, for those listeners who don't know who Peter Isaacson is, sorry to interrupt, for those listeners who don't know who Peter Isaacson is, he's, he's the chief strategy officer of Fair Observer, and he has penned over a thousand pieces so he he is Methuselah. He 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 uh, may may the gods uh, and, and of course I'm pagan. So may the Greek gods and the Norse gods and the Indian gods bless him and may he continue to have such fecundity uh, for a very long time. And he's an inspiration to all of us. So in his seventies he 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 pens something daily. It's hard to keep up with editing his pieces. And he is of course uh, you know takes uh, shall we say a more left leaning view than. Uh, both Glenn and me, and so I was joking that uh, Glenn is combining uh, Teddy Roosevelt with Marxism, and perhaps he might be reading too much of uh, of Peter Isaacson's columns. <laughs> Could be. It's my years in Europe. My years in Europe. But the the, the point I was going to to make, uh, feeble or or insightful as it may be, is that I think what the U.S. should have done, what Pelosi should have had in her her uh, approach, is 
okay, what is the U.S. objective? It is to not allow China to change the international system, to not allow China to swallow violently uh, Taiwan or to invade Taiwan. So how does one do that? Well, you could take a series of steps such as um, saying nothing but arming even more substantially and progressively the Taiwanese so that the costs to the Chinese regime of an invasion would make it not worth the attempt. And that would change the correlation of forces, which is my Marxist illusion, uh, a a word, uh, a phrase and concept I really uh, think is uh, important, in a way that the symbolic visit by Pelosi doesn't. Uh, And so you act rather than um, speak. Uh, In this instance, you arm rather than visit. Uh, And that would have changed things. I think the ramifications of all of this happily, I expect, Atul, you'll probably differ uh, from me on this, but I I think for all of the uh, sound and fury that we're um, surrounded by on this this visit and the Chinese uh, Air Force and navies, you know, firing rockets into the ocean by Japan and Taiwan and so on, um, they probably won't fundamentally change things, but they'll have made a little more brittle and already brittle situation. I, you know, I, I, I have been surprised, oh no, I have not been surprised actually by the reaction. The Chinese have started firing missiles and they will. The Chinese are going to um, behave like cats on a hot tin roof. Uh, I don't think uh, that she is going to, and I may be wrong, maybe there will be conflict because people sleepwalk, countries sleepwalk into conflicts, leaders do. And so that is possible. But she does not really want war. He wants to be anointed uh, emperor again. He wants a third term. And so that may be true. But what Pelosi's visit has done is that it has um, it has break, broken a pattern for 25 years. And I completely concur with you on the Teddy Roosevelt point. Talk softly, but carry a big stick. Change the correlation of forces. Arm rather than visit. I would go further. Have joint exercises with the Taiwanese Navy, with the Japanese Navy, with the South Korean Navy, with the Indian Navy, with the Australians to whom you've just sold nuclear submarines. Of course, they'll take a while to get commissioned and and operational. But the point is that really assemble the coalition and, and Asia, in any case, was feeling neglected uh, by the U.S. in the wake of the Ukraine war because Asia, and I know this because you and I, of course, met the Japanese defense attache in, uh, not too long ago, and I met him just a couple of days ago over, over a long dinner uh, we hosted together. We know from talking to various Japanese, and not just him, we know from talking to Professor Uh, Haruko Sato um, and many others that Japan feels a sense of vulnerability because they don't know if the US is as committed to Asia as it is to Europe. There is this fear in Asia that we are we are not quite uh, as equal as the Europeans because at the end of the day the Europeans are largely of European descent and so there given that given that reservation what America needed was to change the correlation of forces, arm rather than visit, create um, 
uh, more collaboration, particularly between defense forces who feel threatened by the rise of China, uh, the Quad, uh, of which India, Australia, Japan, and, and the US are a part, could be strengthened by bringing in France, which has a big Indo-Pacific presence, South Korea, even Taiwan. So there are things the US can have, I mean, can do and could have done quietly. Uh, but instead, we get a politician before a midterm election flying in, making a symbolic visit and behaving um, just like any demagogue would to, to rile up the mob. And I'm frankly very disappointed. I think it is uh, all of the steps that you say the the U.S. should be doing. I I do believe the Biden administration has been doing quite impressively. I, I view Pelosi's trip as a uh, a sour note, actually, um, not in harmony with what the U.S. policy has been. But the the U.S. should have been, uh, as we all do, you know, all militaries should study Sun Tzu and intelligence services. And, and the way um, to wage war is not to fight it, <laughs> but to change the objective reality so that your opponent wants to do what you want uh, him or her to do. And you do that by changing the reality on the ground uh, and not causing this, a point that my wife made to me strongly and that I, I, I read um, echoed uh, repeated in the Chinese uh, tweet, tweetosphere, or whatever it would be called, and, and blogosphere, uh, which is that this was an unnecessary um, uh, loss of face for, uh, for Xi. And you don't need to cause someone to lose face. You can uh, box the person in in a way that uh, makes him uh, smile or at least acquiesce. Uh, and I think this was a... a but in a way, perhaps Nancy Pelosi is acting a bit like she, because she announced the visit. She was supposed to go in April. COVID uh, postponed it. And then uh, once the visit was announced, she would have lost face. She couldn't be seen to have buckled down under Chinese bullying. So she went on regardless. And so I think this is a case where... where Everyone didn't want to lose face. And, and my big fear, and I go back to the analogy of Kaiser Wilhelm II, is that no one wanted World War III. No one really wanted World War III. Everyone sleepwalked into it. In fact, there's a book, I think, Sleepwalkers, that has come out about it. Um, I may be mistaken. Uh, I'm very short on sleep, uh, <laughs> which is no excuse. Uh, the only... <laughs> Just the wrong number of war. World War One, we're talking about, and we want to avoid World War Three. Yes, yeah, but it's similar yeah. to World War One in, in the sense that World War One, you had a long period of relative peace. You had a period of over a century of globalization, and of course, colonization. You you had that dash uh, across Berlin. People like Cecil Rhodes, Bish Bash Bosch. Uh, you had the French as well, joining in, and everyone had sort of forgotten what a big war between European powers or between big powers could look like. There have been little wars similarly, Iraq, Afghanistan, so on and so forth, Vietnam as well, relatively, they're all minor power wars. And I think uh, after 1945, the big powers haven't really had a proper punch-up. And there is um, 
there is not just a peace dividend, but to steal words of the Dutch defense attache in New Delhi, peace dementia. And we are living through that. And I think uh, it is very easy uh, for China and Russia, who are not natural friends, by the way, just as Austria, Hungary and Germany weren't. After all, they, they fought uh, a war in 1867 and, and they had, they, uh, they had uh, challenged each other. Prussia and Austria had challenged each other for the leadership of the Germanic world and Austria lost. And yet they ended up on one side in World War I. And Russia and China have um, rivalries uh, in terms of geopolitics, in terms of geostrategy, in terms of Central Asia. They're both uh, you know, keen on being top dogs in Central Asia. And of course, they have a border which is sort of settled, but I'm not sure it is as settled as it seems. And yet, they could be the Germany and Austria-Hungary of today. So I think uh, everyone is just behaving in a, in, in, a slightly, in a slightly irrational manner. In fact, there's, there's an article by Stephen Roach uh, in the Financial Times who talks about two insecure superpowers stumble to, uh, towards collision over Taiwan. And I think Stephen may have a point. Well, I don't know that they're um, insecure, uh, but certainly the I, I, I view it more in the in the framework of a uh, a rising power challenging a status quo power. Uh, no power wants to lose power, and uh, these are not easily reconcilable uh, a, a reconcilable dynamic, and and I. There are objective reasons. Neighbors will have reason to disagree more than people who are far away from each other uh, that Russia and China will um, have tensions. But I'm not too concerned about that because in the great power dynamic, uh, you will become a friend of the enemy of your enemy. That um, is Chanakya. That is Kautilya, yeah. by the way, the, the great uh, um, uh, Indian uh, thinker, uh, the Indian counterpart to Sun Tzu, who, who said this. I believe for the first time. Well, um, this is the human nature doesn't doesn't evolve. I'm afraid, and, and a very depressing thought. And and this, not to take us tangentially too much, is my grandfather grew up in the in the West, in the Wild West, 130 years ago, and I grew up with him. And he told me about when Halley's Comet came uh, to Leadville, Colorado, in 1910. It came to the Earth, but he was that's where he lived. And that the town went crazy. He said everyone had gone completely insane, talking about the ends of the earth and bemoaning this in street corners and then acting completely. The civilization sort of collapsed for a brief period. And I used to think, well, uh, you know, how primitive we've evolved from these Wild West cowboys. But, of course, that's a nonsensical thought <laughs> on my part. Uh, because we're no different whatsoever. And our response to the pandemic has been... Uh, almost the same as, as the English and French responded to the pandemic in 1350 um, or to the cowboys in 1910. So our great leaders in Beijing and Washington and Taipei are... Uh, are not so great. They have feet... As, uh, they have, uh, as they're, human as we are. Yeah, they're, they're feet of clay, which brings me to the final part of our podcast, which is what are the implications of the future? Um, what beholds um, some crystal ball gazing by 
by the great CIA man. Well, who would that? We'll have to find someone. <laughs> um, no, well, I, you know, I think I, I uh, I'm probably going to, uh, I'm repeating myself a little, I guess, but uh, I am hopeful, uh, and I think that the consequences are going to be less than the, the sound and fury of the moment. Uh, it doesn't change the underlying dynamics, which are an increasingly aggressive um, and capable uh, China, and a uh, less quickly but increasingly uh, reactive uh, United States, which will have the support but not the initiatives of uh, other Asian states. And uh, I don't think the visit changes that at all. Uh, and that's that's the the deeper uh, alarming r reality. Uh, this trip, I think, uh, could have been avoided. I agree with her objectives, but that's that's irrelevant to whether she should have taken it or not. Uh, and I, I think those are the, and I hope those are the ramifications, because otherwise, it will simply make a uh, an already increasingly difficult international situation in Asia uh, worse. Well, uh, you just mentioned that you agree with Pelosi's intentions, and I'd just like to say that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. And uh, The Economist had a great line uh, that uh, Pelosi might have wanted to create a moment of uh, moral clarity about America's support to Taiwan. She probably considers this her legacy. After all, this might be her last term as Speaker. She's 82. And so this might be her quest um, uh, for immortality. Uh, but uh, she might just have created a moment of danger uh, because um, the visit per se is nothing. I agree with you. The long-term tectonic shift um, is inevitable. The differences between communist China and uh, and. Uh, uh, superpower, uh, a democratic superpower, were irreconcilable as early as 1945. Uh, I think uh, the US was clear that it wanted to curtail communism and of course China wanted to preserve communist rule and integrate Taiwan. And of course uh, in 72 that great communique papered over the cracks because both of them wanted to contain Soviet Union. And as long as people were subtle and flexible uh, in both countries, things could carry on. Now, with China as a threat, there, is, there has been a trade war, there is a tech war, and I would argue now there is a cold war of sorts. Um, now, uh, China is indeed a challenge, and the US um, feels threatened. And so the U.S. is no longer willing to, to behave in as sophisticated a manner as it once did. And China, of course, is very prickly. Um, Haruko Sato, uh, who, who, with whom uh, I've done a podcast, and I was speaking the other day, and she said that China has risen a touch too fast, like, just as Japan did back in the 20th century and the Japanese had no experience of diplomacy, they had no experience of of imperial rule, they didn't really know divide and rule unlike uh, unlike the British or even the French, they were crude, so were the Germans. 
and the Chinese rise um, could be meteoric, but it could also come crashing down like a meteor. And there's a lot that she finds uh, similar between the rise of Japan then and the rise of China. Uh, Of course, China is a global power. Of course, China is bigger than Japan. But uh, Xi Jinping is clearly prickly. I mean, who gets so upset over a cartoon uh, that compares him to Winnie the Pooh? It's not such a big deal. It's not such a biggie. But I, I hope that, our, uh, pardon me for jumping in, I hope our listeners um, know what you're talking about because I, I have often cited this little uh, factoid as actually more important than the absurdity that it, uh, that it contains. Oh, please explain. Xi Jinping, please explain. Yeah. Various uh, bloggers in, and, and tweeters in China thought that uh, photographs of Xi Jinping resembled uh, photographs of Winnie the Pooh, the lovable uh, bear. Who doesn't love Winnie the Pooh? Uh, and so they posted this. They said, look at our president or some such thing as that. When I first saw it, I thought it was endearing. And, and um, that was the end of my thought. Xi Jinping felt otherwise, and the people who posted these figures were arrested and put in prison because you don't denigrate the great leader. Um, that's a pretty disturbingly thin-skinned uh, regime to do that. Exactly. So we are seeing a prickly regime, a thin-skinned regime, a regime that has stoked the fires of hypernationalism, partly uh, 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 as... Um, uh, uh, as a means to cover up for its own inadequacy, inadequacies, whether it is the zero COVID policy, whether it is the bursting of the property bubble, whether it is the slowing down, down of economic growth, or whether it is the um, demographic uh, chickens coming home to roost. Um, and uh, therefore, we are at a dangerous moment in history. And, uh, and if either power miscalculates in this game of chicken, we could be in for a very bumpy ride, which could well include nuclear war, because there are no guardrails as they were in the Cold War. And the attempts to to establish them at this moment won't go anywhere. So in my view, we are really living in perhaps the most dangerous time that we have since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, I wrote a piece for, uh, I, I write regularly for Newsweek and periodically for Fair Observer. I, I wrote a piece of uh, future history uh, in which I forecast alarmingly that there had been a, um, a mistake by one party or the other, a Chinese or American and a military clash, which of course changed the world. And in my scenario, it had not become a nuclear exchange, but um, uh, Guam was largely destroyed. American bases and uh, military bases in Japan were destroyed, and a number of uh, and most uh, Chinese naval assets uh, at water were destroyed, as well as a port or two before a peace. And you know, the, no one knows the future, but it's it's very easy and and plausible to spin out such uh, scenarios given the increasing tensions. All right, but we hope that the leaders who have clay feet will have enough survival uh, instinct to, to, to be like uh, Tom Cruise uh, in his action movies, a word disaster at the, at, the, at the final millisecond 
or any of the Hollywood heroes, James Bond, for instance, who, you know, we can we can go through a whole list of them. And 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 on that cheery note, um, I ask all of you to subscribe to Fair Observer, go to our website, fairobserver.com, sign up for our newsletter, it's free. Follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and most of all, YouTube. Subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel, press the big red button. And yes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, The Dialectic, um, from Glenn and me. Uh, have a wonderful uh, morning evening afternoon wherever in the world you are we will see you and on see you later bye for now